Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I trust and hope that you had a blessed Easter weekend, and it is good to be back in the studio. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, to answer your questions is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. And good evening, Brother Nathan. And let me say good evening to those who might be listening to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home this evening. Maybe you don't have a question tonight, but you have a suggested topic that you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. Please share it with us. We want this program to be as effective as possible. And the best way to make it effective and practical is to discuss things that you're discussing at home, that you're discussing on the bus ride to and from town, and that you're discussing with your coworkers. Maybe there's a really difficult question that someone has asked you, even in a so-called argument against Christianity, and you aren't sure exactly how to answer it or how if you've answered it appropriately, we would love for you to ask that question, reach out to us, ask that question, and to be able to answer it from a biblical worldview. We are glad that you are listening to That's Truth tonight, and we are going to be continuing the topic that we started last week, and it was that of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pastor, why are we discussing this? One of the main reasons we're doing it, basically, is because um, it was the Easter period, and this is where most people's mind focus. Um, I think there are three times a year that most people in the Caribbean go to church. Uh, they go on Easter, uh, they go on Christmas, and they go on Good Friday. And I think the church has an opportunity to reach people, uh, although I must confess that within certain circles, uh, because it happens to be the calendar that is set by the established churches, there are people that avoid it. I've said this more than once uh, in our church. I've said it on the radio as well. I think it's a mistake. I think that you can use the Christian calendar and you can reach people that you would not be able to reach because the people are simply not coming to church. And we thought that the resurrection was a subject to deal with because um, it was current. Uh, there is some misunderstanding on the resurrection as well. The Jehovah's Witness, for example, do not teach uh, that Jesus Christ does not teach that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. They believe that his spirit and his body disintegrated in the grave and somehow disappeared by, into chemicals. And so they're talking about spiritual resurrection. So we need to bring some clarity to the subject so that people understand what's the biblical position on this matter. So there's those that are going to believe that the resurrection was a literal resurrection. There's those that deny it. But what difference does it really make? Well, the significance is that if you 
understand what the biblical teaching is on the resurrection, then you will see the significance of it. For example, uh, when it comes to the whole matter of the gospel, the gospel is the good news, the glad tidings. In Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul is defining what the gospel is, he says it constitutes three basic elements, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. If there's no death, there's no gospel, if there was no burial, there's no gospel. And if there's no resurrection, there's no gospel. So the whole question is, uh, what does the biblical, what's the biblical teaching? How does a man get saved? And the biblical approach is that Christ's death and his resurrection were essential for salvation. His death for the sins of humankind. His resurrection uh, was necessary also to indicate that his work was satisfied by God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that uh, it was through the re- resurrection of Christ was declared to be the Son of God. So the fact that his sacrifice has been accepted uh, by the Father and the Father has been satisfied was indicative by the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, there was no way that we would know that God has accepted his sacrifice on the cross. So uh, it is profoundly important when it comes to the whole doctrine of salvation. And, and that's why I said on the previous program, uh, there are two things that uh, are essential for anybody to be saved. A person must believe that Christ died. For example, you take the, the Muslims. The Muslims do not believe that Christ died on the cross. They say that somebody else was substituted and died in his place. So a Muslim cannot be saved. I don't care who says what, uh, who believes what. Number two, they don't believe in any resurrection. So how can they be saved? And... Uh, um, uh, of course, number three, they don't believe that God has a son. So how can the so when it comes to this matter, these are not issues that are insignificant. These are very very important issues, and this is what distinguishes Christianity from any other religion. Uh, For example, Nathan, there's no other religion under the heavens that declare that their uh, teacher or their Messiah or whoever they want to call ever raised from the dead. This is a unique. And it is only found in Christianity in terms of its uniqueness. So I, I don't think there's any way, any question whatsoever that when it comes to the whole matter of Christianity and the establishment of Christianity, the vindication of Christianity, and the authenticity of Christianity, the resurrection is absolutely essential. But Christians claim to serve a loving God, but it is far from loving in the world's mindset today to say that Christianity is the only way and everyone else is wrong. How do you combat well, that? I, that's easily answered because every other religion outside of Christianity also claims exclusivity. For example, the Muslims believe that Christians are not saved. The Hindus believe that Christians in their, their way of thinking. So to think that there's only Christianity that exclusively says that uh, that alone is true is really a, a misnomer and a misrepresentation of the facts. But the fact is this, if there's, if there's something called truth, there must be something called a lie, and there can only be one truth. Mm. Jesus Christ claimed that he is the truth. That he's either the truth, the way, and the life, or he's not. And that's where you have to decide whether or not you accept the Christian claim or you accept some other claim. Uh, and it all boils down ultimately to what one believes about the Bible. Is it the Word of God? Is it not the Word of God? And why do we believe it's the Word of God? So when it comes to a lot of these issues that people question, it goes back completely to the whole question of is the Bible authentic, is it inspired, is it the Word of God? That's why when 
people uh, don't understand how important it is not to let people undermine the scripture. Uh, because once the scripture is undermined, every single belief that we hold to falls to the ground. And that's why it's so important to defend scripture and have good grounds for uh, establishing the fact that it's the word of God. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is a live interactive program. I know you may not want to be the first one to send in a question or call in with a question for the night. Don't shy away from it. There are others that have questions. And just go ahead Prime the pump for the rest of us, and you can send in your question by WhatsApp or texting it to one 782 If you have a question and you just maybe a little embarrassed to ask it or you don't want it in any way to possibly reflect back to you, in the message, just put anonymous or don't want this even what island I'm from or what island my area code might be from. We will keep it completely anonymous. We won't even mention whether it's from the Caribbean or not, if you mention that. Again, WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. We're here to answer your questions. Or you can call us, 268-462-7420. Yeah, Nathan, I, I just want to say again to those who might be listening, look, there's only one gospel. There are false gospels. Even in Paul's time, you read the book of uh, uh, Philippians. Paul talked about people preaching another gospel. And the gospel of the Bible basically is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And it's not just the fact that uh, he was raised spiritually either. You've got to believe what the Bible teaches on this matter. He was raised bodily. He said, uh, um, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And then this, the interpretation is given by John. He spoke concerning the temple of his body. Uh, so you have you have religions in in Antigua that would say I believe in a resurrection, but I don't believe in a bodily resurrection. So you're you're not worshiping the God, the Christ of the Bible. You're worshiping a, a different Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, because the Jesus of the Bible rose bodily. I'm emphasizing that to say because people use the name Jesus and the name God and the name Church is of utmost significance to me or to anybody else, is whether are you in line with what the Bible teaches on this subject. If not, you open the Pandora's box to all forms of deception. And that's why we have a multiplicity of all kinds of religions today. It all stems to the fact that we've deviated from the biblical teaching on these matters. And that's why it's so important to hold to these doctrines, especially the resurrection, etc., etc. There are a lot of liberal theologians. It all started, for example, in Germany with the higher criticism, that uh, men who claim to be men of the cloth, who have undermined the resurrection and do not even believe in the resurrection, but yet they claim to be men of God. Such men are not men of God. They're fakes and frauds and they're, they're apostates. But uh, so the main fact that a man claims that he, uh, you know, he's called into the ministry or that he is a, a theologian or that he is a Catholic or that he's a Protestant or he's a Baptist, whatever it is, that has no significance in the scriptures. It has to do with a man falling in line with the biblical teaching on this matter. I just need to say that because there's a lot of uh, people are confused. How can this person say to be a Christian and that group say to be a Christian, yet they hold these deviant views? Again, you must judge everything by this standard of scripture. That's the sibyleth. That's the that's the canon by which we must judge everything. Other than that, we are susceptible to being misled. In discussions with individuals, Pastor, do you refer to Christianity as a religion? Look, however, there are people who make an issue of that. I don't make an issue of it because generally speaking, uh, the language that is used, they call it a religion in the sense that it's a 
uh, a different form of spirituality. Let me put it that way. And I don't see anything particularly wrong. We understand that a religion is uh, something built around a god, and they have a cultus or certain rituals or practices, and and uh, uh, they have some sacred book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In that sense, right? Uh, I I don't I don't make. I don't make quibbles about these type of things, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, people, uh, the Bible says, they strengthen a gnat and swallow a camel. Yeah. And I think that's what people do, nitty-gritty issues. We all understand what we mean by religion, uh, but people make big issues of these things, which I think is very, very insignificant. Before we jump into new material, is there anything you want to catch us up for the individual who has just tuned in tonight, hasn't had a chance to listen to the episode from last week? Uh, about the resurrection, anything you want to well, cover? Generally speaking, what we, we covered uh, was the fact of the significance and the importance of the resurrection and the fact that it's indispensable to Christianity, central to anything that we believe. And uh, this is recognized not only by people who are Christians, but also by those who try to undermine Christianity. The central focus of their attack has always been the resurrection. Uh, so we, we emphasize that part of it. Then we talked about the, the nature of the resurrection. Uh, we we want to say that it was a very unique uh, resurrection. We also pointed out that it was a bodily resurrection, uh, and that was uh, important for us to establish, and it was an actual resurrection. Uh, it was not just a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily resurrection. Uh, so we, we did, and then we talked about the different false theories that were held by by people in connection with this matter. We talked about the swoon theory. We talked about the disciples stealing the body. Uh, Joseph of Artemia supposed to have stolen the body. The Romans supposed to have stolen the body. Everybody's supposed to have stolen the body. The reality is that none of these uh, false claims have any credibility and any historical proof that this actually happened. It's just an excuse for people not to accept the resurrection. And then we moved... Uh, next into the whole matter of the evidence for the resurrection and that's where we ended last time where we were talking about uh, what biblical evidence is there that there was an actual resurrection that's where we, we, we stopped last time before we pick up with additional evidence for the resurrection let me just share the contact information again if you have just tuned in this is a live interactive program and we look forward to your interaction you can whatsapp or text your question to one two six eight. 782-1454 or you can call the phone line is open and available it's awaiting your call 268-462-7420 pastor we have a question that's come in good night what is the difference between christianity and judaism well the main difference between christianity and judaism is that Ju judaism's concept of god is different than the christian judaism sees god as a um, as a unit uh, Christianity sees God as a unity in the sense that there's a Father, there's a Son, and the Holy Spirit. Judaism uh, only acknowledges that there's one God. They don't have any place for the Son. They don't have any place for the Holy Spirit. That's the essential difference between them. Because of that, that difference, of course, um, as practiced today, Judaism does not believe that the Messiah has come. Uh, they are still looking for Messiah, and they still go through a lot of the same rituals you find in the Old Testament because they don't understand that those were shadow of things to come and they were fulfilled when Christ came. Uh, so there are a lot of these things. And uh, substantially, Judaism has a lot to do with rituals, a lot of rituals. Even even those who have been converted to Christ, uh, they have certain uh, forms of uh 
what you may call Jewish Christian churches, and you will still find that within those churches that there's still a lot of rituals going on and, and following a lot of the old feasts, etc., etc. But weren't those rituals commanded by God in the Old Testament? Yeah, but they fulfilled their purpose. Uh, okay. Paul said there were shadow things to come. Uh, after the, uh, you know, I, I remember reading an illustration, I've never forgotten it all my life, uh, one by Walter Martin, I think it's in the book, um, The Kingdom of Cults, when he was talking about the difference between the shadow and the substance. He said, um, imagine that um, all your life you've been given a photo of a person who's to come. And of course, in types and prophecies, that's what he was talking about. He said, imagine that uh, you had a sent you a, a, you had a friend and he sent you photos and photos and photos and photos and then one day he's coming on a plane and then when he comes on the plane and he lands and he comes out the plane his shadow falls on the ground you worship the shadow and forget the substance mm-hmm. I've never forgotten that to be very honest I think it's a perfect illustration imagine that the substance has come and people are still absorbing the shadows we must be focused on Christ and not the shadows and I think that's where a lot of Judaism uh, fails in this regard thank you to the individual who sent in that question pastor what about additional evidence for the resurrection well we talked about the empty tomb and I don't want to uh, go there again uh, that the body was uh, stolen which is a total fabrication we also talk about the post-resurrection appearances of Christ and there were at least 10 post-resurrection appearances of Christ uh, and not only to individuals but to groups and to subgroups etc etc not only to male but to females so it, it, it's quite a range and then Paul talks about over 500 in the book of Corinthians chapter 15 we also talk about the number of witnesses uh, to the resurrection uh, again it's not just the apostles not just the women uh, but again as I mentioned these 500 uh, and we talked about the, the fact that um, the, the kind of witnesses that we have uh, in the scriptures are witnesses that no one has contested and questioned the integrity or the morality so they've never attacked the integrity or the ethical uh, uh, efficacy of these, these men and remember that to be a witness a credible witness there are really three, three requirements you had to be competent and competence has to do with the fact that you had to be an eyewitness if you want to be a, a, a true uh, witness and then they had to be sufficient to have uh, adequate witnesses and testimony to be accepted. And the third thing, of course, they had to have a good reputation, a good character. So when you look at the fact that these men were competent, they all saw, they all said they saw, uh, there are numerous in terms of, of, of numeracy and, and number. And then, as I said before, n- no one, not even the critics, have ever questioned the integrity of these men. So those are the three criteria that is used in the courts even for a successful, competent witness. Uh, and they meet all of those qualifications by any standard. Uh, as you mentioned that, my mind goes back and contrasts those witnesses to the witnesses that were used in the trials against Jesus and how they, even the Sanhedrin were having trouble and bickering among themselves, saying, where did you get these witnesses? Their testimonies don't align. Yeah, and you'll find that in the, in the Gospels as well, it's indicated that they were suborned. In other words, they were paid mm-hmm. to be witnesses, and they didn't uh, know, know the facts because yeah. they weren't there, and they were just creating these, this, this fictitious narrative in order to... Uh, um, bring Christ um, and his death and his resurrection into disrepute. So the witnesses for the resurrection are so much surpassed the witnesses used I remember to, Nathan, every single one of them died for what they believed. 
hardly would you ever find a person dying for something that was false. But if you True. really truly believe something and you actually believe you saw it, it's uh, I I would I think all of us would agree that if we were there and we had seen him die and we knew he had died and then three days later we saw him alive we met with him remember it was over 40 days after his yeah. his, his uh it would be virtually I, I i think it would instill in us a fearlessness that no matter what you do to me now my master my savior is dead he's risen he's conquered the grave so i don't need to fear you and that's why they were so fearless uh peter day of pentecost a man who was cowering and kowtowing to the people around him suddenly this man is speaking with such boldness people are appalled i mean what happened to this guy he was transformed why was he transformed read his his sermon and read every uh, sermon he preached after that you crucified him but god raised him that was the key the, the lord was living he was not dead therefore these men had no fear of death because he had conquered death that's the, the supreme explanation as to why these men were so bold after the uh, resurrection uh, the other thing nathan that is, is significant and I, I i haven't shared this i with the uh, we, uh, with the audience it takes one witness to establish a murder. So if you see somebody murdered, you can witness, and uh, as you, and that will be enough. It takes two witnesses to uh, high treason. A person's committed high treason against the government, maybe try to uh, do an insurrection. It takes uh, three witnesses to execute a will. So if you're leaving property uh, to your family or something, it takes that. It takes seven witnesses to to, uh, uh, to legalize an oral will. If you didn't write one, but seven people were there and they heard it, you said, I, I, I bequeath this to my son or my whatever it is. It takes seven of those. Uh, but you have over 500. You have over 11 apostles. Uh, so the, 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 the witnesses and the volume of witnesses uh, is beyond uh, disrepute whatsoever in, in, in these matters. We have a WhatsApp comment that has come from Antigua. I think the empty tomb where Christ rose from in Israel is one of the greatest tourist attractions in Israel. Well, I've never been there myself. I think Nathan might have been there himself, yeah. so maybe you can say something on that. And had the opportunity, so it was about seven years ago, to go on a trip to Israel. And uh, there's two locations that are debated back and forth as to where Calvary was or where the crucifixion was and where the tomb was. And um, most Bible scholars that I have read or those leading the tour groups that I spoke with would agree that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre inside uh, Jerusalem inside current-day Jerusalem is where uh, the tomb would have been and where the crucifixion would have been. And there's some historical reasons. We won't go into the, the time for that. But if you want to get an idea of what the atmosphere would have been like at the tomb, you can go to the Garden Tomb or Gordon's Calvary and a very peaceful garden area. And that tomb, the main reason that I would, if I had to give one reason why that Garden Tomb is not the location where Jesus resurrected from. It's been dated back to the 7th or 8th century B.C. And if you remember, Jesus was put in a tomb that had never been used before. So it wouldn't make sense that he was put in a tomb that had sat empty for seven or 800 years uh, prior to that. But yes, there were lines and lines of people waiting at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to walk past the stone that they believed Jesus uh, Jesus' body would have laid on. But I will say this. My takeaway 
is there is so much religious tradition and confusion and bickering uh, at these holy sites, so-called holy sites, that they have missed the point of the gospel. And that's what my takeaway was. Yeah, I, I think that's the problem that even in the Old Testament, you remember when the um, the snake, the bronze snake was put on the pole, yeah. and when you look in faith, you were healed, and Christ said, if I be lifted, I be lifted as son of man. You remember that that very snake became an image of idolatry in the Old Testament, and that's the problem with that. And I, I think the part of the thing is what has to do with the Jewish mind, that they love a lot of traditions. And as a result, uh, it's very hard for them to give up their traditional beliefs. The whole book of Hebrews uh, is a classic example of that. Here, uh, the whole book of Hebrews is trying to counteract the temptation of the Jews to return to the old rituals because here they are going through persecution. Uh, they're going through persecution because they've embraced Christianity. But Christianity has no real paraphernalia. It serves a living Christ. There is no, no. It doesn't have uh, material objects to hold on to. But here, the Jews uh, surrendering to that, giving into that, under persecution, and they're being told by their uh, ancestors and those of who they once part of Judaism. Uh, what you have to hold on to at this point in time. I mean, we've got this, we've got Moses, we've got this, we've got the law, we've got the rituals, we've got all the... And the book of Hebrews is written exclusively to say to you that you've got something far better than that. And it taught you better than Moses, Christ is better than the angels, Christ's sacrifice is better than the Old Testament sacrifice, Christ's Passover is greater than the ancient Passover, and we now have a great high priest. It's all that what Christianity has is better, 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 better. It's the key word in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but it was it, the, the temptation was, do we give up these rituals, or do we hold to this living Christ? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, if, if you go back to those old rituals, you've apostatized from the Christian faith, so you better hold on to this thing. But there are people who are accustomed to relics, and accustomed to um, days and weeks and so on and so on. it's very hard for those people to give up and that's why Catholicism has such a hold in the Caribbean from the time you are young as a Catholic uh, you've got all these different forms of rituals you've got the rosary these are things you hold on to so when you go through trials uh, uh, and you have to make a choice now it's like surrendering these tangible things that you hold on to but not realizing that a lot of these things become idols yeah. uh, and that's the problem that the Hebrews face in Hebrews the book of Hebrews and the writer is counteracting that by presenting the living Christ to them uh, that's the challenge today the stone that they believe that Jesus' body was laid on in 1555, I believe it was. I have that date because I just was talking about it in Sunday school this past Sunday. They actually put a marble slab over top of it because people were chipping off pieces of it to take it home as some superstitious uh, yeah. stone that they could take home. Yeah. A, a, a parallel to that is look what the Catholic Church has done with the cross. Yeah. They've said they found a part of the cross that was crucified, and they sent pieces all around the world. If you take all those pieces, you have a, a, a hundred crosses. <laughs> it, yeah. It's it's how I just anyhow I guess that it's human nature, and uh, we just got to understand that we serve a living Christ and not a dead Christ. And uh, we we this this is the significant thing. But how to move people who have been accustomed to these form of rituals is one of the great challenges we have. But we don't uh, substitute create our own rituals 
so that people can lean on these different type of things. We present the living Christ because, again, uh, he is alive, he's not in the grave, and that's the great glorious truth about Christianity. One other, I'll mention one other tradition that uh, I learned while we were there. They believed that the spot where Christ's cross was, that underneath that is where Adam was buried, oh and that Adam's skull was there, and when Christ's blood ran down from his body down the cross and ran down through the soil, that it collected in the skull of Adam's uh, body. Well, I've never heard that one. <laughs> but lots and lots of tradition there. But we have a WhatsApp question yeah. from Antigua. What was Thomas saying or meant after he put his hands in the wounds of Jesus? Because some think he was shocked, opposed to confirming Jesus' deity. Well, let's suppose he was shocked, uh, as people are proposing. And by the way, this has only come from uh, the Jehovah's Witness. You never hear another uh, Orthodox or any fundamentalist or any evangelical church suggests what it is saying. So this comes really from the the, um, the Jehovah's Witness who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. So they've got to find an excuse. But let's suppose that uh, that Thomas was shocked. He said, uh, my Lord and my God. Yeah. Should not Christ have corrected him? Yeah. Would that not be the sensible thing to correct it? Is he not divine enough to know that if that was remained in the Scripture and it was a misrepresentation, how it could deceive other people? So it is very, very clear that when you look at, even at, from that rationale, uh, Christ who is omniscient, uh, omniscient, who knows everything, uh, if he thought that that statement was not true and he did not correct it, it means that he's complicit in allowing that statement to be misinterpreted uh, by others so that people believe that he is God. As, as, no. And when one thinks about that for just a moment, uh, one cannot constantly thought that that would be the case if it was not true. And by the way, that's not only verse that calls Jesus God. Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 1, the Father says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. And that's not the only thing either. You go to Philippians chapter 2, who was in the form of God, did not consider it to be robbery, uh, to be considered equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Uh, and then, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. So it's not just one verse. And there are other verses, by the way, which is called Lord and God in, in the scriptures we can refer to. So clearly, uh, it's just a fabrication. And it's those people who uh, do not believe that Christ was the Son of God that bring that kind of an argument. But again, if you take if you take the position that Jesus Christ is God, you assume that he's, uh, take that assumption, it is inconceivable that he would have allowed Thomas to make that kind of a statement if he knew himself he was just a man and not God. He should have corrected him at that point in time if that was so. But uh, that interpretation and that translation is a bogus translation, and you will not find one single translation outside the World Tower uh, Watchtower Bible uh, that would translate it that way. So that gives you an indication of where the bias is. Thank you to the individual who sent that question in. I appreciate it. I can't say that I have ever heard that argument yeah, on I've heard that it verse. Before. Yeah, I've heard it so before. that's uh, by you asking that question tonight. It has better prepared me for a discussion in the future if someone were to bring that verse to me when witnessing. And that's another great reason that I am glad that you are listening to That's Truth tonight. You may have the answers or some of these answers to questions, but to be refreshed in your mind 
of how to answer skeptics or questions about the Bible or just hard questions about life and what the Bible says or doesn't say better prepares you to be a witness and a bull testimony. If you have a question, you can call and ask it by calling one 462 7420 That'll put you live on the air. Or if you don't want to speak live on the air, you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 7821454 Pastor as we're having these discussions with our coworkers or family members or friends who may not believe in the resurrection or who are sincerely asking questions about the resurrection any other evidences that we can point to Yeah there, there's uh, several others we pointed out last time the, the fact that Christ himself predicted his own resurrection so if you deny the resurrection you are calling into question the integrity and the probity of Christ. Uh, no one can deny the resurrection without denying uh, who Christ is and his nature and his person. And as a, as a result, the question is deity. It's the question uh, when you question the resurrection. I don't think people understand the full repercussions of that. Uh, the other thing we mentioned was the fact that the Old Testament um, uh, predicted his, his death. Uh, Psalm 16, and we we mentioned last time the logical consequence that it predicted he would dead, he would die, his death, but it also predicted that he would reign on the throne of David. And we said by inference, logical inference, it means that he had to be resurrected because you can't reign on David's throne if you're dead. You had to be resurrected. There's some other things I want to just do quickly, uh, Nathan, and that has to do with the extra biblical witnesses of the resurrection. Uh, there is Ignatius who lived from 50. AD uh, to 115 AD. He testified in regards to the resurrection. There's Justin Martin, 100 to 105 AD. There's Tertullian, uh, 160 to 220 AD. And there's Josephus. All of these are church fathers who live around the same first century, the second century. All of them testify that the people that they knew had seen the resurrection and carried on the testimony to them. So you've got second-hand witnesses uh, also confirmed that they were in contact with people who had seen, etc. Et you don't have that kind of history, that kind of evidence in history. It's very rare uh, as, as far as that is concerned. I also want to uh, quote, uh, Nathan, some legal scholars who have actually uh, done an extensive study on this subject and who have written their conclusions on this matter. Uh, I want to read directly their statements uh, uh, along this line. I want to read about Sir Edward Clark, who was a QC. And uh, this is in England. He said his words, As a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. Uh, the gospel evidence for the resurrection is compelling, and as a lawyer, I accept it uh, unreservedly. Now, this is a very competent lawyer and, uh, in England. I want to quote also uh, Professor Thomas Arnold. He wrote three volumes on the history of Rome. He was the chair of the modern history of uh, the School of Oxford, Oxford University. And this is what he said. He said, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no fact in the history of humankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence in every sort 
than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a strong statement. Strong statement. But let me give you another one. This is Sir John Singleton Copley. He was better known as Lord Lyndhurst. Um, he was recognized as one of Britain's greatest legal minds. He was a Solicitor General of the British government from 1819. He was the Attorney General from 1824. He was three times the High Chancellor of England. He was elected in 1846 as a steward of Cambridge University. And uh, this is what he said. He said, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never been broken down yet in court cases. Mm. See? Uh, take Simon Greenleaf, let me give you another example. He is the professor of law, was a professor of law at Harvard University. He was a Dane professor of law at Harvard. He produced the famous book, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. It's the greatest work on evidence even today that's used in law courts. Um, he wrote a book called An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. And after writing that book, he came to the conclusion that the resurrection is the highest order of irrefutable evidence in any court, any part of the world. So it's not just the, uh, the biblical writers and the church fathers, but some of the greatest legal minds who have written some of the great books on Jewish prudence have looked at the evidence, uh, ancient, scripture, whatever, and came to the conclusion that there's no other historical fact that has greater evidence than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That itself uh, should speak volumes to those who entertain the idea that this is just a myth or some kind of uh, ploy that is, is, is foisted on humanity by um, gullible Christians. Pastor, what was accomplished by the resurrection? Well, if you go into Scripture, um, there are several things that the resurrection accomplish and which makes it very 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 significant uh number one uh it certainly validated the claim of christ and who he claims to be uh he claimed to be the son of god he claimed to be uh the messiah uh he claimed to be the way the truth and life he claimed to be the light of the world uh he claimed to be the door of the sheep um, he claimed to be the good shepherd uh all of those are claims that he made all of it depended on the fact of who he actually was. And the resurrection is conclusive proof that all those boasted claims that he made uh, were certainly true. And if you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Nathan. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 4 says... And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This was God's public de declaration to humanity when he raised him to the dead that this was indeed God's Son. So there's no speculation now. It's not just dependent on John's testimony and the disciples' testimony and Christ's own testimony. But this is God's testimony in raising Christ from the dead that he was indeed God's Son and was vindicated through that uh, supreme exp uh, expression of power. The other thing is, uh, if you look at R Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. Corinthians fifteen seventeen reads as follows, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. That's another important. If there's no resurrection, 
there's no real authentic Christian faith. And not only that, <laughs> our sins are not forgiven. And the, the fact that our sins are forgiven, Christ died for our sins. But had God accepted that sacrifice or not? The resurrection was the vindication that what he did satisfied God and was a display to the world that what he did in his death actually accomplished the purpose. So uh, in terms of the resurrection being significant and its importance, if it's important for us to know we're forgiven, we're pardoned, to be sure that that really did happen, that when his death, God counted it on our account, the resurrection is what very uh, indicates and vindicates that that actually happened. Uh, and then um, if you look at John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. John five twenty-eight and 29 says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation the point I'm making there is that his resurrection would guarantee that there will be other resurrections one other verse uh, that would look at um, um, Acts chapter 17 Acts chapter 17 what verse uh, only the latter part of that chapter. Okay. Um, let me give it to you quickly. Yeah, look at verse number 30 and 31. All right. Acts 17, 30 and 31 says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commendeth, commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Yeah, I, I mean, the indication that there's going to be a resurrection, and the fact that there's going to be a resurrection of every single man that's ever been born, uh, the Bible says that God raised Christ to prove that uh, man is going to be resurrected. So it guarantees there's no doubt in it. it should not be in doubt in anybody's mind that when Christ was resurrected it was a complete indication that man would be resurrected and stand before God and give an account so that's one of the significance and the importance of the resurrection that guarantees that every living person who dies will one day stand before God and give an account uh, so death is not the end it's just a preamble to eternity but that is a, a, another uh, significant importance of the, the resurrection the other thing is, uh, Nathan, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 4. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And if you read the verse before that. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Right. And if, uh, that whole chapter has to do with what's the gospel. And uh, Paul has explained that the gospel is the resurrection and the death and the burial of Christ. The point I'm making here is that if there's no resurrection, there is no gospel, there's no good news. So the whole resurrection, uh, um, if it falls, the gospel falls with it. We have no glad tidings to declare to anybody. And that's how significant the resurrection is, how important it is, because the gospel is wrapped up in that whole teaching on the gospel. You referenced that because he had a resurrection, mm -hmm. he opened the door for later resurrections. How would you respond to the person who says, but Pastor, Lazarus was raised from the dead 
before Jesus rose from the yeah, dead. Yeah, again, Lazarus' death and all other people in the Old Testament, I think there were four or five in the Old Testament, is, is not equivalent to what we're dealing with. You're talking people who were raised and died again. Okay, completely different. They were not given a glorified body, etc., etc. What you're dealing in the case of Christ is that person who was taken out of the grave permanently, uh, glorified body, and now seated at God's right hand. That has never happened before. That's why he's called the first fruits of them that are out of the dead. See, Uh, they were raised from among the dead, but they were never raised exclusively out of the dead. And that's the importance there as far as that particular doctrine is, is concerned. Uh, so it, it, it guarantees uh, future uh, judgment on, on those. The other thing that I uh, would like to say, uh, Nathan, about this matter is that uh, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Acts 2 and verse number 39 says, For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Okay, I've got the, the wrong reference there. I wanted to reference where it, um, if he's going to sit on the throne of David, uh, he has to be resurrected. Uh, I know in Luke, when he was um, born, um, it was it's either Annas or uh, the other prophet Simeon, who declared that this one who would sit on the throne of David. So if there's one to sit on the throne of David in the future, it would have to be that this one would have to be resurrected. And and that's the important point. If there's no resurrection, there's no millennial kingdom. There's no sitting on the throne of David. So that again gives significance to the, the, the resurrection. And then if you look at uh, Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 mm-hmm. says... Seen then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. Verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The point there that we have a, a great high priest who's gone into what? The heavens. If there's no resurrection, we have no current intercessory high priest for us, and we had no advocate in heaven. Uh, so when you think about people saying there's no resurrection, you don't believe in resurrection, it completely topples everything that Christianity uh, teaches, including the fact that we have no assistant, no help, no aid, no person to intercede to, no one to intercede for us. And when we want help to find and find to find mercy in, in a time of need, we have no one to turn to. But the resurrection is clearly linked that this one who's gone into the heavens can only go into the heavens as a result of being resurrected. So his high priestly function uh, is linked also with resurrection. There's no high priestly function today if there was no resurrection for him. And then uh, one last thing, thing, uh, Nathan, go back to Corinthians chapter 15 and and notice what Paul says, um, if there's no resurrection, what the significance of that is. And I just want to just point that out negatively. Look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. Stop there for just a moment. So it means that all the apostolic teaching 
preaching uh-huh. is vain. And remember that if you read the book of Acts, in every single where you have whether it's Peter preaching or Stephen preaching or Paul preaching or, or, or John preaching, it doesn't matter whichever, the emphasis throughout the book of Acts and uh, you can take a concordance and see it. It is one thing. They always preach the resurrection. And Paul is saying, quite frankly, if there is no resurrection whatsoever, all preaching is empty because we preach to you the resurrection. That's the key to our preaching. And, uh, and then the other thing he said in verse 14 is what? Not only is our preaching vain, but your faith is also vain. Because what is your faith? You've put your faith in what we've preached, what we've preached, the gospel. So if I have treated, uh, preached your truncated gospel that now includes the resurrection, it means that you have a vain faith because your faith is in Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the glad tidings. But if that didn't happen, you have a vain, empty faith of no substance, of no use. That's how uh, important the resurrection is. Also, look at um, verse 15. Here's another consequence. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. So if you deny the resurrection, you're calling, the discrediting every single apostolic witness. Uh, in other words, if there was no resurrection, the apostles said there was a resurrection. So every one of these men are now found to be false witnesses and not credible. Now, if they're not credible in respect to the resurrection, how can they be credible in anything that they wrote? How can we believe anything? So it completely undermines the integrity of the scripture and and, the, and their writings. Again, notice this link to the whole question of the resurrection. We preach and we testify there was a re- resurrection. And if there was no resurrection, we are false witnesses and our credibility is gone. You can't accept anything we teach before. Here's another one. Look at, uh, well, look, look at um, verse 17. Verse 17 verse, says, Yeah, go ahead. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Again, you're still, we talked about that, I don't want to elaborate on but again, if there's no resurrection, there's no sin, because sin is uh, forgiven on the basis of Christ's death and his resurrection. So if there's only the death without the resurrection, you have not got total sins forgiven. It means that Christ died, but it would mean that God did not accept the sacrifice and vindicate that by raising him from the dead. So again, you've got a vain faith. Christianity is logical. It is reasonable. You can't uh, it's like a, a, you take a, 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 a table that requires three legs. You can't knock one and expect to stand up properly, right? And you need a death, the burial, and the resurrection. If you knock one of those down, you don't have a, something that's stable that you can depend on. It just becomes fictitious. Then look at verse 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Uh, again, what think of the delusion of that, that every single person who has died uh, since they put their faith and trust in Christ, they perished. They're never going to return. There's no resurrection. There's no the body dissolved. There's, in other words, you're as dead as a dog. You're not going to return. Paul says that's the one of the results of denying the resurrection. It means that you give man comfort in the fact that when he dies, uh, it's the end of it. It doesn't offer him uh, a resurrection where he stands before God and given account. And then look at verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. <laughs> I don't think there's another a better way to put that. Yeah. We all that we believe from the time we were, uh, we put our faith until if we've been saved forty years, it means that we just wasted our time down here, and we are a bunch of miserable people, uh, not even worth listening to. Think of that the the horror 
of, of that, Paul says. So he brings that in. And last of all, look at verse, uh, I think it's verse 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. That's verse 18. We Verse 19 is where most men miserable. Verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now, there's a verse which says, uh, if uh, then Christ is not risen, if they don't rise from the dead, then Christ is not risen. <laughs> That's the, the point there. That uh, one. But you notice that Paul mentioned there are at least six different results that uh, completely undermine the entire Christian faith if you can topple this whole great doctrine of the resurrection. So this is not a minor issue or minor doctrine. This is one of the incontrovertible fundamental doctrines that you can't surrender. It's one you call the fundamentals of faith. No man who disbelieves the resurrection can call himself a Christian. Well, he can call himself a Christian, but he should not be accepted for the church. He should be, be dismembered from the church. And he's not part of the body of Christ. He's an apostate. He's a fake. Uh, he just simply is a religious person, but he's not a born-again believer. You cannot be saved if you deny the resurrection of Christ or you deny the, 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 the death of Christ. These two things are indispensable and basic to the gospel, fundamental to the Christian faith. Here's a WhatsApp question that has come in. Pastor, the resurrection is part of the gospel, but did it pay for our sins, or was it the crucifixion that paid for our sins? Well, that's why I just mentioned to you, Christ died for sins. But the fact that uh, what he did on the cross was acceptable and God was satisfied was a vindication of the fact that uh, that was accepted. So you can't have one without the other. If Christ was not raised from the dead, it would mean simply this, that he died in vain and God did not accept his sacrifice. That's why in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says that it was through the resurrection that God was manifesting that Christ was the Son of God, a complete vindication of who he was and what he did for us. It is absolutely essential. And, and that makes it, let me point it out again. Remember read in Corinthians chapter 17, if Christ did not raise from the dead, then your sin's not forgiven. So clearly, it is linked with our, our sins. Uh, as I said, it's not that the resurrection paid for the sins, his death paid for the sins, but the resurrection was the vindication that his death satisfied the entire righteousness of God because of the broken law by humankind, and God had accepted it. Anything else you want to mention along the lines of the resurrection as we wrap up this topic? No, I think that uh, I hope substantially that I have uh, been able to establish the uh, the evidence is so strong uh, that um, I'm, I'm not a legal mind uh, by any standard, but uh, these great legal minds, especially um, Greenleaf, who wrote the law, of the book on evidence that are currently used, so they never, no greater book has been written on the law of evidence than this man. He himself has done a thorough examination of this matter. Uh, there's perhaps one last thing I, I should mention. Um, in the, in Britain, there were two lawyers who decided that they really wanted to disprove the entire system of Christianity, bring it down to its knees. One was called Gilbert West, and one was called Lord Lillington. And they decided two things needed to be done. And number one, you had to, first of all, prove that the resurrection was wrong. Secondly, you had to prove that Paul was not converted, because Paul is the one that gives you all these epistles. So if you can destroy, and by the way, if Paul was not converted, it would mean that there's no resurrection, because Paul said he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So both of these men got together and decided, you know, uh, you handle the resurrection, 
and I'm going to handle Paul's conversion. And they, these were not Christians. These were people that were bent on destroying Christianity. Uh, they wrote a book, and the, the book is called, uh, Gilbert West wrote a book called History and the Evidence for the Resurrection. And um, uh, Gilbert West wrote one on the conversion of the Apostle Paul. After considering the evidence, these men came to the conviction that not only was the resurrection historically provable, but also the conversion of Paul was indisputable. What they did, they went to, uh, in the case of Paul, they went to the book of Acts and retrace all the trade routes, the, 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 the missionary routes of Paul, where Paul stayed when he stayed, and et cetera, et cetera. And they were appalled that every single geographical location that Paul mentioned, and going back and studying the whole thing, it was uh, completely in line with all the uh, nautical data of the time and was clearly an indication that this was a, a historical event and that this man, the Apostle Paul, was genuinely converted and that he did make these missionary journeys. To make a long story short, the uh, evidence overwhelmed them in both cases and both of them became Christians mm. and uh, wrote these books. And these books are available today to people uh, who want to go online and, and probably look the at them. The name of the books again? Um, the History and the Evidence of the Resurrection, written by Gilbert West. Pastor, we have Codrington on the line. Codrington, thank you for calling with your question, and please go ahead quickly with your question for Pastor Murphy. Yeah, thanks. You know that my name is Codrington, and you know that I'm a child of um, Holy Mary and Jesus Christ, her son, you know. So um, I'm going to go to my Christian now, because I will never change to say um, Haley is my mother, you know. Well, here's my question now. Uh, my question is this now. You remember when God put down all the laws and them in the um, Old Testament to all those people until whatsoever is going to be forced in like a dove, like an ox and so, and this is certainly part of um, sin offering and so. Yeah, I'm listening. Right. So now we come into the New Testament now. And the New Testament say that everybody say that how God loves never change. But now when he became man now, and now when he became man now, he has to go to the same commandment and them and fill them up. If God was never changed, why did Jesus Christ have to come and fulfill the commandment? Is that not the changes of love. So, if you can explain to me this, and then when you don't talk, you can give me another few time for finish my answer. Well, Codrington, well, the, the, the whole issue of Christ coming, uh, he had to come because man had violated the laws of God, and man had become a sinner. Uh, humankind had become sinful. The only way that um, man could be saved because of God's holiness is that the human sin had to be paid for. The question is, how can a sinner pay for his own sin? Uh, and, and God's a righteous God, so the man needs righteousness uh, if he's going to ever uh, satisfy uh, God's righteousness. The biblical teaching is from the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is the first promise in the Bible that the Messiah would come. 
the seed of the woman would come who would bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise his, his heel. That was the first promise in the Bible concerning the Messiah coming, that one day God would send uh, the seed of the woman, which was born of a woman in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, he would come, and he would be one to destroy the devil, but the devil in the process would bruise his heel, and that's when he was crucified and the nails went through his heel. But here's, here's what, what was necessary. Christ had to come to do two things. He had to die for the sins of humankind. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. He had to pay the price of human sin. But that's not all. The law was broken, and the law had to be satisfied. If God is going to deal with man on the basis of another covenant called grace, the law had to be fulfilled so that once the law is fulfilled, you can lay that aside and now deal with man on another basis. And that's why Christ came and lived a perfect, impeccable, sinless life, so that he fulfilled the entire law for us and met all the just demands of the law on our behalf. So he not only died for our infringements against the law, he satisfied every single requirement of the law required so that in his death and his life, he completely satisfied the justice of God, enabling God now to do two things, to be just so he can forgive man because he can only be just if his law is fulfilled. He can't break his law to, to save man. He has to have his law fulfilled. So that's why the Bible says he must be the just and the justifier. He had to be just and he also had to be able to justify. And because of what Christ did, he can now justify humankind on the basis of the work of Christ. So it's only the the work of Christ that enables God to forgive you. So when you say you are son of Mary and a son of God, you are making a fatal mistake. You should be a son of of, of, of God. You should be a son of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the one that paid the price for you. Mary never satisfied the righteousness of God. Mary never died for your sins. The only one that died for your sins is Christ. The only one that ever satisfied the laws of God is Christ. So he's the only sacrifice. And he asked you not to put your faith in Mary or in the church or in the pastor or in the pope or in the sacrament or in the confirmation. He says, put your faith and trust in my son and the work that my son has accomplished on your behalf. If you try any other means, I don't care who you are, I don't care how many churches you belong to, I don't care what your membership is, you will never make it to heaven if you do not put your faith exclusively in Christ and Christ alone. So I can ask you another question? Yes, you can ask me a thousand questions. Because you don't fulfill my question, what I asked you about. What, what question you asked me? I asked you about the, the sinful animal and them who was taking away our sin. No, okay, let me answer that question. What happened is this. Prior to Christ's coming, God enacted a system of sacrifice to show man to... Um, demonstration what was needed so that the Lamb of God who would come when he comes people would know that he came to die for the sins of the world every sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing to the one who would come so when the, when the animals were sacrificed the innocent was dying for the guilty and that was the teaching that the innocent was dying for the guilty to create in man a sense of his depravity that the animals who are innocent are dying for the guilty man who sins against God. That was designed to create a sense of guilt within man and to point man that man needed a perfect sacrifice because remember, every animal 
that God chose, it had to be as perfect as possible. It could not be lame. It could not have a disease. It could not be broken. The emphasis there is that it required perfection. And that was the emphasis of all these sacrifices. It was pointed the one who come had to be perfect. There could be no flaw in him whatsoever. So when John the Baptist saw him in John chapter 1 verse 29, the Bible says, And when John saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In other words, this is the Lamb that all these sacrifices pointed to. He was the Lamb. So all the sacrifices in the Old Testament was pointed to Jesus, who would be the Lamb, who would die in human place. That's why the sacrificial system was put in place. It was a pictorial form of a future coming of the Messiah and kept men's mind repeated again. The innocent is dying for the guilty. The innocent is dying for the guilty. When will this ever stop? Who will end this whole sacrifice? And the answer is, Christ has done that. Read the book of Hebrews. And it will show you uh, that all these sacrifices pointed to Christ, who is the greatest sacrifice for human sin. But there was a temporary enactment of God to demonstrate to humankind that the innocent would one day die for the guilty and the perfect would one day die for the guilty. But that time had not yet come until the Messiah had come. That's the reason why you have the Old Testament sacrifice. So um, that's why the reason we have the Old Testament sacrifice. But here is this Jesus coming, who we are love, and then who we are trust, and know that how he is going to come as our Lord now. So, well, who was doing the sacrifice on them before he come down on this earth? And well, let me answer that question. If you read again the book of Hebrews, you'll find that what happened there in that case was that these... Christ, uh, God forgive man his sin and put it in a, a, an escrow account. In other words, human sin was never totally forgiven until Christ died. It was kept in a suspense account as it were, knowing that one day he would pay the ultimate sacrifice. So God treated man as though man's sins were forgiven, but the blood of animals cannot take away the sins of humankind. But God had a temporary um, system in place to deal with it on a temporary basis until he dealt with it permanently. So sins were only totally forgiven when Christ died on the cross. But God was willing to pardon humankind until that sacrifice was ultimately made. That's the whole purpose of the sacrifice of Christ. It had to happen. Otherwise, man would still be in his sins. But God dealt with it temporarily, putting it, as it were, in a suspense account, if you want to use that term, waiting until finally when Christ comes, because God knew that his son would ultimately pay the price. Okay, I thank you for this because um, what I wanted to know is thank you for Jesus Christ and thank you for God too because remember all those prophets who was testifying unto the Lord Jesus Christ now they get lock up and lock up all about now and now we have a little freedom and so that's how the whole world can know that Jesus Christ and now none of people can go out jail and so this is so so God is on the free right now you remember all those times when people used to get lock up preach about Jesus Christ yeah well, all I would say to you, uh, uh, my brother, uh, Codrington. Codrington, look, you make sure, and I'm very serious about this, I appreciate your calling, I appreciate when you call, uh, you make sure that your faith and your trust is in Christ alone exclusively. I am saying to you, as honestly as I can say to you, if you are trusting any other person, any other means to get you to heaven, you will not get there no matter who tells you what the bible is very clear on this matter 
There's only one name under heaven given among men where we must be saved, and that's through the name of Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, you have forgiveness, you have pardon, you have eternal life. If you do not have Christ, you have neither pardon nor forgiveness. If you're holding on to any other religion, any other person other than Christ to get you to heaven, you are in for the great shock of your life, and it may be too late. So make sure you know him now and not uh, take chances and play a Russian roulette with your life. Thank you very much for your call, Codrington. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you being willing to call in with your questions. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.39. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, you can also... Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can listen to the program, watch behind the scenes, and also comment your questions. Speaking of comments from Facebook, Pastor, we have a comment or a question asking for the names of the writers of those books that you referenced. Um, We will get those for you. Give me just a minute. I'm going to share the contact information while Pastor pulls those names up for you. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. is the number to be called and be put live on the air. You don't want to speak live on the air? Not a problem. We have other ways you can communicate with us. You can WhatsApp or text us your question to one 268 782-1454. I'll give that to you again a little slower. WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Yeah, let me give you the, the one by uh, Gilbert West. The history and the evidence of the resurrection. The name is Gilbert, J-L-B-E-R-T, West. Uh, the other one is written by Lord Lillington, uh, just Google his name and look for a book written in connection with the Apostle Paul and his conversion. Uh, that is one. And then the other one I think is very, very significant is the one by Simon Greenleaf. This is the uh, uh, famous professor of Harvard University uh, who wrote the book on the treatise of the laws of evidence that is actually used today. It's the greatest book ever written on the laws of evidence. And he wrote the book, and I'll give it to you here, An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the rules of evidence administered in the courts of justice. I repeat that. An evidence of the testimony of the four evangelists by the rules of evidence uh, administered in the courts of justice. Um, That is written by uh, Simon Greenleaf, G-R-W-E-N-L-E-A-F. I think you will find that book a fascinating book. It's a small book, by the way. It's not a very long one. I have it in my study. Very short book. But that, I think, would be substantial to help you to... Um, look at the evidence that is there. I hope that information is helpful, and thank you for sending in that question. Pastor, how would you respond to someone who says, evangelical Christianity is beyond saving? There's no need to even try and offer solutions to save the organization or organization group of churches. Uh, it is embedded with white supremacy. It's homophobic. It's sexist full of uh, transphobic crowd, and so on and so forth. 
Well, what are you sorry, I, 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 that person, uh, um, if you're expecting a form of Christianity that tolerates those kind of things, uh, evangelical Christianity would never tolerate. We're not here to impress uh, the public and to become relevant with the public. That's not our interest as evangelicals. We're here to proclaim truth and the scriptures. So if you're looking for an evangelical movement that will embrace homosexuals and transgender and all this foolishness that are going on today, that's not the kind of evangelicalism that you're going to find. So we're not trying to save it. Evangelism doesn't need to be saved. What it needs to do is to stand up for the truth. It, it's compromising too much as far as I'm concerned. So the problem, there's nothing wrong with evangelical Christianity. The problem is wrong with apostate evangelical Christianity and liberal Christianity that doesn't stand up for the truth. But we, we are here to defend the Bible and stand for the biblical principles of the Bible. So we are against homosexuality, we're against same-sex marriage, we're against transgender, uh, we're against abortion, we're against things the Bible are against. And we will not kowtow, nor surrender, nor try to be relevant, or try to get the approval of anybody, anywhere, any place, whatever it is. We're not here to be popular. No person who ever proclaimed truth ever was popular. Christ himself, the greatest embodiment of truth, uh, was crucified. So that's exactly what you'll find today. What people want is uh, the acceptance of every situation, everybody, and that is not the biblical teaching. We're not here to save the world. We're to save people out of the world. See, This world is doomed. There's nobody who can save it. Uh, it is going to end a cataclysmic end the Bible talks about. So what we are told that the church is a called out assembly. We are calling people out of the world. We're not trying to make the world better. We're trying to make the world, uh, call people out of the world into the church. The church is not the world. The world is not the church. The two should not be identified together. So to, to that, uh, who is asking that question? I think you're confused as to what the church is all about, what the purpose of the church, and what the evangelical church is all about. We're not here to win friends and influence people. We're here to preach truth, and truth will always be offensive to those who are living a lifestyle that's contrary to biblical Christianity. You said something about that we are here to teach what the, and hold up what the Bible says. The Bible says that we should stone rebellious children. Should we still be doing that outside St. John City? Now, clearly, if you're looking under the Old Testament economy, remember that God is dealing with us on the basis of grace. He's not leading with us on the basis of law. Under Old Testament law, those were the strictures that were given uh, to the Jews to deal with rebellious, uh, rebellious children. That's not what's given to us today. And again, if you read uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 4, you find that Paul even warns fathers not to exasperate their children and, and frustrate their children, but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. So we're not going to have those kind of strict... And by the way, the, the term that is used there, stoning the, the children, if you read it quite frankly, it said it be a drunkard. So it's not talking about baby small children. It's talking about big stone men who are enough to be drunkards, who are disrespecting their parents, and the Bible says those people ought to die. And let me just say this, by the way. We read Romans chapter 1. There are 19 different sins the Bible says are worthy of death. So it's not as though that these things are not worthy of death. But that's not our role as believers. We're here to offer hope and forgiveness and pardon and preach grace. That's what we're here to do. But believe you me, uh, the sins uh, are worthy of death. Every single sin is worthy of death. Uh, 
It doesn't mean that we are give, given that responsibility to execute it. So, and God is dealing with us on the principle of grace and favor because of what Christ did on the cross. So there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that were worthy of the capital punishment, for example. Uh, you take uh, fornication, you take adultery. Those are things that were worthy of capital punishment. But we don't impose that today because the New Testament doesn't teach that. Uh, it teaches par- pardon and forgive. However, it condemns every sexual sin outside of marriage. So it's not going to try to uh, uh, palliate the offense. Uh, it still condemns the offense, but the penalty uh, is not imposed. It's now extending to every man grace and pardon and forgiveness, but it's not going to suggest that these things are right and to be tolerated even in the church. The church must discipline people who engage in all this kind of activity that God condemns. We've got about 14 minutes left in tonight's episode of That's Truth. If you have a question, still time for you to call and be put live on the air. Call one 462 7420 You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 Or you can send in your question on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, and right there on the Facebook Live video. Yeah, Nathan, I, I, the question that you read on what we before, look, there are many people within the evangelical church today that has betrayed the evangelical faith. And that has led to people thinking that the evangelical church is uh, splintered or it's um, apostate. Uh, very, uh, what, who used to be very solid preachers and, and people that are well-known uh, who embrace and tolerate certain things that uh, is appalling. Uh, people like Tony Campalo, who's written extensively, everybody knows his name, he's written so many books. I mean, he's very tolerant towards homosexuality now, uh, and actually feel that the church is making a mistake by uh, condemning this kind of thing. Uh, they're becoming more tolerant towards transgender, etc., etc. Et uh, I would wish anybody who recently, who's have any doubts about this, uh, I just saw a Tucker Carlson thing with an interview of a woman who uh, had gone through transgenderism, and now looking back at how she's regretted it. You should listen to that the, the, uh, and see what is really. It's We are creating a miserable society that in the years to come, when all of these people that have gone through this experience understand what injustice it was done to them from the time they were young, you are going to look for mass murderers, you're going to have people who are violent in society, you're going to look at, you're going to look at horrific crimes being committed because these are people who are going to take vengeance when they realize that adults who knew better uh, encourage it, tolerated it, and uh, the price is going to be paid down the line. Uh, I am not a prophet and the son of a prophet. I can see it happening because of the wrath and the anger. A man who was born of a boy then discovered that at the age of four or five, his parents didn't have wisdom enough to tell him that uh, he should not have this transgender and get all these hormones and have his, his penis turn into whatever it is. It can be done, by the way. Uh, and then later on in life, he recognizes a real man. Uh, he cannot do that. Who are you going to take your wrath out on, right? And the church that is tolerant of those kind of things will also face the repercussions. So I don't see that uh, this thing is leading to any uh, docile society or uh, any society that is offering some kind of utopia. I see down the line a lot of people out of anger and out of bitterness and resentment for people failing to uh, hold them in check 
when they knew better than them, I can see people taking real, real vengeance uh, on, on society. And I think that's what's going to happen if we don't stop this nonsense. Pastor, I want to spend the last 10 minutes of tonight's episode talking about the death of Christ. And I think a good place to start is to talk about why is this an important subject? And you may be thinking, as a listener, thinking, wait a minute, you talked about his resurrection. Why didn't you talk about his death first? But why is it important that we do talk about his death? Well, it's only after, to be very honest with you, Nathan, that I, we did the resurrection that uh, they thought the fact that um, if we were looking at the Christian calendar, uh, we would have seen Good Friday, then we would have seen Easter. We probably would have um, connected two, but because the evangelical church, fearful of the established churches, um, and and seem as though that we are part of that, s- some of them have uh, desisted from having a Good Friday service, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the church I'm from in Barbados, uh, we always had a Good Friday service, and we were never part of the established churches and on what they uh, would teach. We thought it was an opportunity uh, uh, to preach the gospel. And what better time, by the way, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, three times people go to work or go to church in, in the Caribbean, uh, Good Friday, Easter, and Christmas. And we saw that as an opportunity to explain Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. Uh, Christ's death. We preach on the death on Good Friday, and we preach on the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So we got in the gospel there. As it is here in Antigua, we do preach the resurrection on Sunday, but we don't have the Good Friday service. And I think that that is a mistake uh, within the Baptist circle. I really believe that's a mistake. How to change that uh, without creating some kind of conflict because traditions are hard to change and people don't like change. But I do feel it's a mistake we make by not having the service and inviting our friends uh, who will be inclined to go to church. If don't go to our churches, then go to other churches as well. But the the the, re- the, uh, the death of Christ is just as vital as the resurrection in the sense that they are part of the same basic work that he was to accomplish. The work of Christ was to accomplish redemption. The work of Christ was to accomplish what is called atonement or the satisfaction, uh, satisfy God and God's righteousness. And uh, his death was mandatory. Uh, We mentioned in the book of Corinthians chapter 15 when Paul is saying, I declare unto you the gospel. And then he defines the gospel, which has to do with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, showing that there's a, a vital link between both Christ's death and his resurrection. So if there is no death, uh, there is no gospel. If there's no resurrection, there's no gospel. These are two vital parts of the same essential work that Christ accomplished for us. So when it comes to the resurrection, it is an indispensable uh, uh, t- um, uh, fundamental doctrine for the gospel and it's also fundamental to Christianity because Christianity is based on the gospel and if there's no gospel there's no Christianity so for the whole issue of the uh, uh, what the, the, the Christianity is all about the death of Christ is absolutely part of that those great essentials just like the resurrection that's why it is it's, it's important for us to not only look at his resurrection, but also to consider his death. One flows from the other. It's just that we, at this stage, did with the first one, but it's good that we're turning back to deal with the second as well. As was with the resurrection, there were alter, 
not ultimate, there were alternative views. I'm assuming there are some alternative views on his death also? Yeah, well, the, 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 just like um, you try, people try to undermine the uh, resurrection by coming up with specious theories that have no real uh, substance or credibility to, and when you look at them more closely, they fall apart. Similarly, uh, those who are unbelievers and those who were part of the church, who apostatized for the faith and became concerned um, in the 19th century when the German theologians apostatized for the faith, and they were saying that it is immoral for another person to die for another person. That whole argument was used against the idea of Christ dying on the cross. And believe it or not, uh, men who were in the uh, pastors and so on now uh, found it difficult to believe that it could be morally right that uh, God would send his son to die for human sin. So they came up with other theories to explain his death. Uh, so they, they basically surrendered the gospel. But they surrendered it, believing that they had the high ground of morality because they could not see the substitution of death paying for the human sin. To them, the idea of a vicarious death or substituting death was um, legally, in terms of law courts, would not be plausible within the human courts for a man to die for another person. Uh, but again, you know, they've got many heroic men in war who would run on the grenade and, yeah. and kill themselves to save other people. So there's a moral element to this whole matter of a substitutionary death. But because of that, they had to come up with other ideas. Okay, why did he die? And these are some of the specious theories that they came up with. Uh, there is something called the accidental theory. And just giving it to them, to you, because it's, it's not really, <laughs> to my mind, the more you read these things, uh, I'm humored by them. And I cannot believe that intelligent, smart, uh, brilliant people who are supposed to be semi-geniuses could come up with such ludicrous ideas. And, and then the other thing that bothers me is how could Christians ever embrace these things that thought that these made any sense whatsoever? But again, when you go away from the truth, you always fall for error. That's why the, the best defense against error is always the truth. So by surrendering the truth now, they found themselves unable to defend uh, against these errors. The accidental theory basically uh, says that Christ's death had no vicarious or no substitutionary significance and no atoning significance. What really happened is that he held to his theories and his principles and he ran into a clash with society who didn't, hold to what he was doing. So basically, uh, what happened is that it was unfortunately, but he was killed. He was a good man, but it was just an accident that he got killed. There was no pre-planned. From eternity, Christ was not crucified in the mind of God. There was no design by God, that predominant concept of God, that Jesus would be sacrificed. This is just purely an accidental theory. It's called the accidental theory for what it is worth. As you can see, it has no substance to it. It has no rhyme to it, basically. It's, it's just one of those theories that you pull out of a bag to try to explain away the Christian faith. The other one is called the martyr theory. And this is the also called the example theory. Uh, and again, the thing about Christ's death is that it shows you the importance of fidelity to truth and to duty. So he held to the truth that he belong, be, believed in and the, and the principles that he believed in. And uh, he served God the way that uh, he thought he should serve God. 
and as a result of that, he died a martyr, like missionaries died of martyrs, and other martyrs have died for the cause. But again, there was no vicarious death involved. There's no atoning death. There was no significance to his death about being substitutionary. What it is, it's an example of standing up for what you believe, fulfilling your duty, and holding uh, faithfully to your principles, even if it costs you death. That that is to motivate you to have a high elevated view of your your principles and not surrender. The third view had to do with the moral influence view theory. Uh, this is what is called the love of God theory, and what it does it, it teaches that Christ died and suffered to soften human heart to lead men to repentance. Okay, so when people see all this suffering, it would soften their hearts and it would move them to repentance. But again, there was nothing there about atoning for the sins of humankind or sacrificing the sins of humankind. It had nothing to do with the any form of atonement. All it basically was is to morally influence people to feel sorry for the fact that uh, God loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you, not for your sins but to cause you to feel sorry and want to repent of your sins. In the last 30 seconds, Pastor, how can I become a Christian? How can I know for sure that I am a believer? The only way to become a Christian is to become the biblical way, and that is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sins and repentance and put your faith and trust in His work on the cross, His death, His resurrection. Can I be a Christian and not be baptized? You can be a Christian and not be baptized, but it's obedience that you follow after you're a Christian. You want to be baptized because it represents to the world that you've made that break with the world and you're saying, I'm following the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.